loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, this is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Donna O'Donnell Fogurski. Donna's the author of Prisoner Without Bars, A Caregiver's Tale, which was released in November 2018. She's the host of Another Fork in the Road on the Brain Injury Radio Network, and she's the creator and writer for her blog, Surviving Traumatic Brain Injury and that's a .com, and her website, Donna O'Donnell Fogurski, author at DonnaFogurski.com. She's a frequent contributor to both print and online journals and magazines, including Hope Magazine, Lash and Associates Publishing Blog, The Mighty, Brainline, and Disabled Magazine. To lighten things up, she pens picture book manuscripts for children and has published four children's stories with Scholastic. She claims her greatest accomplishment as being caregiver to her husband and high school sweetheart, David, who had a traumatic brain injury in 2005. They live in the Arizona desert. Welcome, Donna. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Oh, me too. And thank you for your book. I'm I'm happy to have you for several reasons, but one is that... uh, I think it's often misunderstood how much loss there is in disability. And um, my wife, who died eventually of cancer, was was very severely disabled by her cancer for many, many, many years. And that was a whole separate kind of loss um, to experience. So I'm really glad we get to talk about that today. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, there is the uh, the gloss that you have and the grief that you have when someone, you know, passes out of your life. But there's also, as you mentioned, the loss that goes along and the grief that goes along when somebody is very ill that you've loved. And uh, it sounds like you know a lot about that, too. Unfortunately, I got my dose of it in 2005 when my husband, David, had a, a brain injury an unexpected brain injury, and uh, that just kind of like turned our, our, our whole lives upside down, which most people will say when they've had a brain injury, that's the, that's the result. Yes. But there, is a, there is a loss. There's a very definite loss, and there's definite grief that goes along with it. Well, in your case, I guess I would say at first it was a, uh, it was a total loss of life as you knew it. Would you agree with that statement? That it was a total... Say that again, Cheryl. It was, it was a at, total, first, at first a, to, a complete loss of life as you had known it. Oh, oh, absolutely. And you know what? It still is because that life is totally gone now. The life that David and I had together beforehand, our, free, our freedom. And I mean, we would often get in a car and just drive. You know, on, on holidays, we kind of... Um, you know, put our noses up to the holiday and say, we're not going to do it this, uh, the normal way. We're going to just go do it our way. And we would, like on Thanksgiving, for example, we would just get in the car and we'd say, which direction do you want to go? 
you know, east, west, north, or south, you know. And, uh, and depending on whatever direction we said, that's where we went. And then we just meandered and wandered. And obviously, that kind of thing is not available to us anymore. I mean, it just isn't feasible. You know, so that's the kind of thing I'm just, and that was an example. That's an sure. example of the freedom that we had um, prior to David's brain injury. Now everything is much more defined. Um, for David, for sure, he likes things to be um, uh, so planned, I guess. More so he knows. He, uh, he doesn't like surprises. He told me this the other day. I wanted to go somewhere on a spur of the moment, and he, he couldn't deal with it. He didn't want to deal with it. He says, no, my day is planned. I know what I'm going to do, and that's what I'm going to, you know, what, I'm, what he's going to do, which is fine because, I mean, right now, because we're 14 years later, and we've traveled a huge, uh, long road that has changed drastically since uh, the beginning of our journey, which was really totally devastating. I'm a lot more free now than I was before. But again, that doesn't mean that, you know, our lives are any, anywhere near what they used to be. So, right. for example, if he doesn't want to go do something, I can still go do it, you know, which is good. Right, right. But I think that's that's um, uh, a good point, too, that most people I know that, that have had any kind of brain injury, um, there are usually, maybe not always, but often some after effects, like what you're talking about, uh, tending to get overstimulated or wanting things to be a little more predictable and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that That's a common um a common thing in my experience. Yes. And, and so then if people are expecting you to act like you used to, even when you regain most, most of your health, let's say, um, it may, you may not be able to do that. So I think that's good for people to know, but let's go right. back, Donna, let's go way back to the beginning because um, I, you know, I think people, it would, it would help people to know where, where this all how this all started. Um, one thing that stood out to me in your memoir was that both of you were extremely active, uh, very fit, I guess, uh, especially him, I guess I'd say, you mm -hmm. know, uh, very, yeah. very disciplined people, uh, very accomplished people, busy doing two separate but interconnected lives. Would that all be fair to say? That's exactly fair to say, yes. And so then can you share with people the, the shock of the beginning, what happened and, and how it was right there at the beginning? Sure. Um, this all happened on January 13th, which was a Thursday, not a Friday, of 2005. Uh, our very unlucky day, I like to, like to say, because... Um, that morning, well, maybe it was lucky in some ways, though, because that morning, uh, David stayed home from his laboratory. He worked at Columbia, um, Columbia University as a professor of microbiology. And uh, that particular morning, he was going to be uh, working on a talk that he was going to be giving at Wesleyan College on Saturday. And then he'd go in in the afternoon to meet with his students and do his science work there. So, um, so that was fortunate. And I'll tell you why in a moment. The other thing is, I would have been leaving for work within about 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes 
I would have been driving up uh, an hour away, away to my um, first grade classroom. So again, there's another little uh, little time time slot there of being lucky, because had I gone, had I left already, and David had his brain injury at that time, he would have had no help, and he would have not been able. Probably, we probably wouldn't be talking about this story right now. Right. Had he gone to laboratory, his students probably wouldn't have been in because he would have gone into lab and been there by six in the morning. And um, his students work through uh, odd hours, through the nights and everything. So nobody would probably have been in lab at that point. So again, he would have had no help. So, uh, so I think that was the lucky part of that, this story is that I hadn't left for work and he had stayed home to work that morning. And that when he was doing his normal routine, he'd get up at four, he would do his routine of um, Tai Chi. He would put it on some spa music like Duder uh, or Nakai, Carlos Mackay, and listen to this music and, and do his Tai Chi, his form of Tai Chi. And then he would end with um, 13, uh, 12 chin-ups. And, um, and that would be his routine every single morning for I don't know how long. Well, that particular morning, he did 13 chin-ups. And it was that 13th chin-up it caused his, uh, his brain bleed, his subarachnoid hemorrhage. And uh, so that, you know, when he came into me at that point with his hand covering his eye and said, something's wrong, and we eventually called the paramedics, and as soon as they put oxygen mask on him, he went into a coma. I thought, oh, that's good. Well, I didn't realize it was a coma, but he went quiet, and he was peaceful. And I thought, that's good because he's calm now. He's not hurting. But right. that's when I didn't—I didn't realize it was a coma until much later. So uh, we had. Uh, w- go ahead. Oh, just, just. Um, I felt you kind of captured those moments where something so stunning is happening, and our brain kind of makes nonsense sense out of it. You right. know, <laughs> it wasn't good news, but your brain kind of no. worked it around exactly. to be. Yeah, it, it made it, it and, and I did that a lot. I did that a lot during this whole thing. Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has the five stages of grief, as you know, I'm sure, and I'm sure a lot of people have spoken about it. But um, the first one is denial. And even though I wasn't actively denying it, that probably was a part of my emotional being actually, um, you know, going into motion there to save me, pretty much. Because, uh, you know, denial is uh, a way of, well, I like to say putting, you know, putting your head in the sand. And the other thing during this whole thing is I kept very, very busy. So between being very busy and putting my head in the sand and not really thinking about things, I usually refer to myself as the energizer ostrich. So if you can imagine that going around, you know. Yes, but, that's a good expression. That, but that was it's, my, it's interesting that, was my that some people mechanism. go very quiet and other people go very uh, active. You're more the active. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I just, I had to do, I had to take care of everything. So I had to be, I had to be busy. I had to, I mean, it wasn't a matter that I wanted to necessarily. It's right. just that I had to. And, so you know, was- denial, and when you're going through this, you're overwhelmingly numb. And so by doing that, I think it's, your, it's a natural body defense mechanism for coping. And uh, actually, I, I, I saw a quote from uh, Kubler-Ross that I liked, and it says, 
you are not living in actual reality. Rather, you're living in preferable um, reality. And that makes so much sense because that's kind of what I was doing. You know, yeah, David's going to get better. I said to the paramedics, will you drive us home when you finish with the doctor here today? Uh-huh. I mean, neither that's totally um, being a, a, a cope, you know, coping strategy or it's totally stupid. Well, and and, uh, two of my teachers, Stephen and Andrea Levine, used to say, never steal someone's denial. Uh, And so Uh then uh, probably the most shocking moment to me was uh, what the doctor, the first thing the doctor said to you, Mm. which um, must have been so disorienting. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact words. He'd be a great candidate for for um, organ transplant, something of that sort. Yeah, very very close. It's and I can quote it for you because it's it's embedded in my head. It's etched in my memory forever. I think he he shook it. He put his hand out to shake my hand and he said, "Hi, I'm Doctor So and So. I've seen your husband's um, scan on my home computer, and he's in very good very good health." very good condition. He would make a great organ donor. And it's like, whoa, that, that just blew my mind at that point. Well, it's shocking in more than one way. One way, of course, is that you were in this, uh, you know, maybe we're driving home later today. So shocking of, of breaking that apart, but shocking that that would be the first, very first thing he would say to you, even if it had been true. Right, uh, I agree. What a terrible way to talk to a person who's in the circumstance you were in. I, I found it unbelievable that that I, was what he approached did, you with. Uh, yeah. No, I found it unbelievable, and many of my readers will comment on that too, that it's just amazing that that was said. And then the second thing that was said, uh, after his surgery, he was very delighted that he that he saved David's life, as, as was I, because he had a very, very slim chance of living. And um, he said, if he's a, he, and this is another quote, I'm pretty sure it's, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not looking in the book, but I'm pretty sure it's, I'm quoting the book, is, um, your husband is a professor. He won't want to be a vegetable. So if he doesn't show improvement in the morning, we can pull the plug. And I was like, holy moly. You know, and I'm thinking um, that that woman, uh, Shimanda, I forget her first name now, uh, lived for years in a vegetative coma. Not that that's what I would want David ever to do, but she did eventually have, um, you know, awareness. Again, it isn't a situation I would want David in, but you just don't pull a plug on somebody in a day. Well, the thing thing that really struck me about it, Donna, is that often doctors make the opposite mistake, which is it, which is not being truthful. You know, right. <laughs> that also can be a mistake, but uh, there is some place where the truth can also be gently delivered and where uh, he was obviously not sharing the full truth, which is there's a possibility of, you know, he wasn't telling you anything about what ended up actually happening, which is that your husband survived and recovered to a great degree and mm-hmm. maintained a lot of his, uh, well, certainly his 
his brilliant cognitive capacity uh, came back. So I just right. found yes. pretty shocking. So yeah. I, th- I think both I, of those were shocking. Shocking statements, for sure. Right. Um, and, and then he had several surgeries which, within a short time, which I know is grueling, even for a person who hasn't just... Uh, you know, suffered such a cataclysmic kind of event. Um, but I thought you captured well what it is to to wait. And I wondered if you sh- you'd share that part of your book about uh, while you're waiting for David uh, through his surgery. Oh my gosh, it was that's like a nightmare. You're just waiting and waiting, and every time a doctor would walk into the waiting room. I'll remember David had three brain surgeries. Let me go back and within two weeks. So every, every week they would give him another one. They'd give him brain surgery and then they'd come back and say that there's another problem. So he had the subarachnoid hemorrhage first. Then they came back and said he has an aneurysm and we have to get that out. So about a week later they did that. Then while I'm waiting for that uh, result to come back, and you watch all the doctors and you know once you're in the hospital long enough you can figure this out. But you can see these, all the doctors coming into the waiting rooms, and there are little pods of people all over, situated family members. And if a doctor comes in with a light step or a smile on his face, you know that family member is getting good news. If a doctor comes in and looks kind of somber and is not rushing, you know the news is not so good. So I always watched the door every time a doctor came in waiting for mine and hoping for that good news. And, uh, but I never got it. I mean, every time he'd come in, yeah, well, that, that's not true. I did get it because David was alive. Okay. That was the big thing. Right, he was alive. Right. He wasn't supposed to be. But then they would tell me he had another surgery to go through. So that was really a uh, very, a very tense situation. And the last surgery took much, much longer than they told me it was going to take. So of course, then your anxiety rises even more. It turns out that uh, they were late getting into the operating room, and I think that would have been helpful if they had told me that. Um, you know, it saved a couple hours of anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the uh, last paragraph of this part I have in in front of me kind of captures it. It, uh, it was hard to watch the parade of scrub-clad doctors search the waiting room for their patients' families, delivering good news or bad. I'd become very adept at knowing which time, type of news the doctors bore based on their expressions, and I waited with hope and dread for my turn. I waited as patiently as I could until the hands of the clock passed three o'clock when he was expected to be out. Then I was no longer patient. I expected the sur- surgery to be over th- by then. Dr. Connolly had said so. Um, this is important to me because what doctors say in those situations has such an impact. It's like law. Yes. <laughs> My yeah, mind raced exactly. into overdrive. Something was wrong. Bad news loomed. Four o'clock came. Still no news. Four thirty. Five o'clock. Finally, Dr. Someone from Dr. Connolly's team pushed through the door. But I've been in those surgical situations, not quite as dire even. But mm-hmm. once that moment has passed where they said they would be back, uh, your mind just has a field day. And I'm a pretty yeah. calm person, but, but still, uh, 
it's it's almost um, beyond control. That that sense that, of negative so right. possibility. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, yeah, so your I mind goes into overdrive, and you just make up all these things that could be happening. You know, and it's uh, and they're usually not good. <laughs> right. Right. We don't imagine the best possible results, do we? Typically, <laughs> not usually. No. Uh, usually, not well, when you're in a hospital situation. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, we're getting about ready for our break, but uh, I think I, you know, that 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 kind of emergency, uh, awful moment then does lead into potentially into recovery, which has its own difficulties. Um, and so let's let's talk some about a, a little more about you know, his, his uh, medical treatment to actually give him a chance at living, but then move into talking about his recovery, because that, of course, uh, demanded a great deal of you. Sounds good to me. Good. You'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Uh, and you can also find a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them, about the healing between a mother and daughter after the daughter is diagnosed with cancer. And to find Donna O'Donnell Figurski, you can go to DonnaFigurski.com. It's spelled F-I-G-U-R-S-K-I.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere. Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere. The Simpson Protocol airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Mm 
listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Donna Figurski, author of Prisoners Without Bars, about her husband's brain injury and recovery uh, process after that event. And um, I guess we could say, Donna, that another uh, good news in the bad news uh, part of your story, yours and David's story is that uh, because he was a, a beloved professor, I, I get the impression, at Columbia, uh, you had access to, to people who really took on his care in quite a thorough and expert way. Um, but I'm aware that that involved you standing up to the medical medical profession in a way in getting him transferred. And of course, hospitals don't really want to do that uh, right. <laughs> for, for, uh, for good and bad reasons, I suppose. But how do you think that you had the strength of purpose when they said, you're risking your husband's life, don't take him out of here, don't transfer him? Uh, what helped you to say, no, we're, we're moving him? Wow. Okay. Well, you know, I have to give credit to the very first hospital first and the first neurosurgeon, despite his bedside manner, who was not the, you know, the best, but he did save David's life. You know, so I, I, I credit them for doing that, but I never knew about the aneurysm at, from that hospital. I was never told about that. Um, now because David is a, a, was a professor at Columbia, uh, of course I talked to his chairman immediately. And his chairman said, well, we're going to bring him over here. So it was his idea. And in fact, David, I wanted David at Columbia from the very beginning with the paramedics. But because we lived in New Jersey, the jurisdiction of, um, of paramedics driving across the state line is not uh, available to them. I mean, we can't do it. So um, they just refused to take him over. They're not allowed. So he had to go to a hospital in our, you know, in our state. So I did what, in fact, frankly, that was the best thing anyhow, because I don't think David would have made it all the way across to New York City. Uh-huh. So anyway, in, in retrospect, what I'm thinking. So, so anyhow, um, once David was, you know, once I talked to the chairman and he said, we're going to bring him over here. And it was kind of his decision. And I went along with it immediately because he said he was going to orchestrate it all. And that was great. So he immediately called one of David's former students who was a doctor there, and she knew all the paramedics over there. And she says, I'm getting you the, the absolute best um, paramedics to bring him over. And he's in state between the two of them said, he has to get here at Columbia. They're going to save him here. You know, and I, and I truly believe that from the beginning. So um, I was right on board with it. But when I told the uh, doctor I had, uh, he was uh, obviously not at all happy, not at all. And he said some things, and they're on the book. But, um, you know, but I, I knew what I was doing at that point. I just said, nope, this is what's happening with the, 
But the other people backing me up on that, I said, no, we're going. And even the president of the hospital called me, I think, twice and said, you know, you're making a very bad decision. He could die in transport. And yet, on the other hand, my doctors over at Columbia are saying, no, we've got the best transport. They do this every day, Donna. He'll be fine. And they loved him, too. Not as much as me, but they loved him, too. <laughs> you know, so I trusted them, <laughs> you know, and, um, so and I believe really that. it's really your trust in them. Yeah, um, yeah uh-huh. I put my trust in his chairman and his former doctor student who was a doctor over there and, and the, what they're saying to me. So uh, I went with that, and I told the, the hospital, that the current hospital, no, I was going to make, I'm making that decision to do it. And I didn't think David would die on the way over. I really, truly didn't believe that he would. Maybe so that I was a healthy denial, huh? That <laughs> helped you a little at that point. What healthy is it, that denial. <laughs> The denial? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But I can yeah, also imagine that there, was, that there was an aspect of uh, he may, you know, there's, it's remotely possible he'll die in transport, but if we don't move him, I don't think he'll, he'll have uh, as good a chance as a, at a life, at a, tr- at a true well, recovery. Yeah, well, this is a smaller hospital we were in. You know, they probably don't deal with big things like traumatic brain injury, and especially three brain surgeries, you know, on a, on a person. I don't know. I, I haven't done my research on them. But I knew Columbia's uh, reputation as a hospital. And so that's what I was going for. And what I had seen from Thursday morning till Saturday uh, evening at 6 o'clock when he was transferred, um, he was in an ICU room. And he was, you know, he was being monitored with a respirator and, you know, the, the normal little buzzers and beeps and things like that. But when he got to Columbia, he was hooked up to, I can't tell you how many machines were in that room. And he was, he was attached to all of them and they were buzzing and beeping like crazy. So they were doing a lot more proactive, I think, um, um, uh, and it, and it, sounded, it sounds as if they always saw a chance for recovery, which turned out to be true in this case, that he was able to recover what? a lot of function. Uh, and, the, and the previous hospital didn't seem to be coming really from that point of view. Well, the previous hospital only did the first surgery and never said anything more about an aneurysm. So I don't know what they're thinking. And right. with Columbia, uh, even still, uh, it was uh, operation by operation. And then when we finally got rid of done all with all of the operations, the neurosurgeon spoke to me and said, "We're looking at probably six months recovery time where he might be in a in a um, out you know outpatient facility." And I'm thinking, holy gee, six months, that's a long time. Well, you know, six months right now in the, in the scope of things is nothing because we're 14, 14 years and six months away from it now. So there's... Um, I thought know, they, that was really... I, that, I thought that was really telling to Donna because it's the same with, uh, you know, when, when doctors talk about surgical recovery, 
uh, they don't talk mm-hmm. about real recovery time. They talk about when you're going to go home and be someone else's problem in a way. Um, yeah. You know, uh, the, the, the length of time it takes for someone to feel well is infinitely longer. And I run into this as a therapist because then people I'm working with, I work with cancer a lot. They'll be like, mm-hmm. what's the matter with me that I don't feel all well? Because they haven't, they haven't been given a timeline on total wellness. They've just been given a timeline on function of some sort. Yes. So that right. was very familiar to me. Yeah, and it's, I, I that, can understand that's, that. <laughs> that's hard to face up to once you realize it's not as they, not as you thought, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, when six months came, and every time we'd go to a doctor. They would tell me, you know, give me a little good news. I mean, I, I hung on the good news. Dave and I both did. They were like our little carrots. That's what got us through. So every time you went to a doctor, whether it be every three months for a vision or, or for a while it was every, every week for a vision, but the neurologist every three months, and he would say, yes, I'm going to watch him, you know, watch his face to see what he's seeing. And um, he would give us, you know, well, he's a lot stronger now, you know, and his his neurologist was, um, that he had in Jersey was amazing. And uh, he actually wrote the foreword in the book, Dr. Michael Kalis. And he was just amazing. And he, he gave, you know, this hope constantly. And I think we needed that. I don't even care if it was true. I mean, it was true. But, I mean, <laughs> I don't even care. I think it was, it but was, he couldn't it know was for needed. Sure. That's the, yeah, yeah. Well, you were very proactive, and I imagine that helped. Uh, you know, there's a section in the book where you're talking about how your husband had to basically go through all the stages of development from, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the infant stage of needing you for his every need to terrible twos, not so wonderful a time. And <laughs> I have heard I have heard lots about head head injury, traumatic brain injury and anger. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's pretty common, uh, or universal almost. And then the teens and, you know, through all the stages, that was very interesting to me because his ability to think came back, but that's a whole different center of the brain, apparently, uh, is yeah. part of us that regulates our behavior and, and he- regulates awareness of our situation and all that. It seems like that came back more, stro- more slowly. Right. His brain stem was what was damaged. And that takes, uh, that controls your, your motor, um, your motor ability and your memory ability, not memory thinking, but your, um, your body and how it, how it does what it does. So, uh, for example, breathing and things like that, you know, you don't think about breathing. Your body just, your brain automatically just goes into the breathing mode. But, when David had his uh, brain, you know, his brain injury, and I don't know which one of those brain surgeries caused all this damage or whether it was the first, second, or a combination of all of them, but he, when, he, when I brought him home, and you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, they just talk about the recovery point to when they leave the hospital and he's on your doorstep. Right. So uh, David came home on April 1st which I thought was a, a horrible April Fool's joke because Terrible. he was not uh, ready to be released from any kind of a hospital. But he came home as about, he was about 128 pounds at that time. He had lost a lot of weight in the hospital. 
and he was it was a hundred and twenty eight pound baby basically. He had to be moved from bed to chair to couch to uh, to the restroom, everything. So um, he didn't know how to feed himself. He couldn't. He, the food would you know get his hand up there, and the food would fall right back out of his mouth and everything. And his right hand was disabled totally. It's just ataxic, so he still doesn't use it. But now he had to learn how to feed himself with his left hand. And uh, it was just difficult. Drinking, he couldn't drink things. Everything had to be prepared for him, like uh, thick shakes, you know, uh, had to be prepared. A food had to be prepared for him, just like baby food. Like you buy in the Gerber's bottles, those little baby bottles. At least that's what they used to look like. So he was reduced to an infant state. He was not able to stand on his own or do anything. And so all of this, this stuff started to come back slowly. He's still very impaired in many of those uh, areas still. Now he can dress, he can take care of himself. There's no question about that. Um, the slower you know, I don't I do any of, any of the personal needs now. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking, what it made me think about was the last few months of my wife's life when she was quite thoroughly dependent, uh, and, you know, and needed help with everything. But... Mm-hmm. We had uh, a huge community that we've developed. We developed over the ten years. There were people in a- in and out of our house all the time. I had a tremendous amount of of help, tremendous amount, and still uh-huh. it was completely exhausting. Yes. And so I was trying to picture. You know, we had a lot of medical equipment like Hoyer lifts and stuff. You know, I was trying to picture uh-huh. feeling more like you were the one uh uh the center post of the wheel and not that many people doing the actual care especially in the middle of the night and how tired that must have made you uh i don't know if anyone can understand that kind of tiredness unless they've taken care of someone who's totally dependent so i was i was resonating with you there Let's go to our second break and and talk more about that when we get back. And uh, listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com. That's my website. You can go to the Good Grief host page to find me. Please do let me know what kind of programming you'd like to see me do and what you've appreciated that you've heard on this show. And to find Donna O'Donnell Fogersky, go to donnafogersky.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent 
inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision-making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Donna O'Donnell Fergurski. Her life as a caregiver after her husband's traumatic brain injury is the subject of her memoir, Prisoners Without Bars. And uh, before the break, Donna, we, we just were talking about what a heavy weight it is. Uh, you know, people don't get evaluated in terms of whether they really have the resources to be cared for at home. Uh you know, once your progress becomes slower, you can you can even still be mm-hmm. making progress. And once it becomes slower or your benefit runs out, goodbye. <laughs> you know, that's right. You're home with whatever you do or don't have uh, to support you, aren't you? That's absolutely true. And I know <clears throat> my therapist had uh, tried to prolong our benefits a little bit as, as much as they could, but. Uh, still, uh, the insurance denied us one week that we should have had. Not that it would have been anything major. I mean, now when you, you know, when I look back at it, but David was returned home, uh, as we talked earlier about, in, in an infant, infantile state. And, and he was, um, uh, I had to, we talked a little bit about the feeding and everything like that, but he had an open, uh, open pe- uh, hole in his stomach of where the G peg was, the gastrointestinal peg where they fed him through his stomach. And I had to do that at home. So I was uh, cleaning dressings and put it, pouring food right directly into his stomach hole and, uh, and, and things like that. And you know, I'm not a nurse. And never right. expired in... Um, in uh, nor never nor are most one. private, you know, family caregivers. But 
you sure feel like you become one, don't you? Oh, my gosh, yes. Everything. Nurse, secretary, chef, the whole kit and caboodle. You are everything to not only yourself but to everyone else that you're dealing with. I mean, if, and there are a lot of people that have young children. My children were grown, so I didn't have that to deal with. But so, I mean, you're doing not only your jobs, the normal jobs that you always did prior to the brain injury, but now you're taking on the jobs of, of your um, care recipient. And uh, those are jobs that I was not familiar with. Those are jobs that I had no idea how to do, like paying the bills. Uh, uh, David that wasn't out, your department, you know? huh? <laughs> was that? That wasn't your department, huh? He'd taken oh, care of no. that. Oh, <laughs> no. Not at all. I mean, uh, cooking wasn't his department either. He could make an onion sandwich, and that was it. Yeah, <laughs> cut, cut up, uh, slice up an onion, put it between some two pieces of bread, and that was his department. I mean, that was all he could do in that <laughs> department. But, right. So, I mean, we each had our jo- things that we did just naturally. And, um, and I had no idea how to do bills. And so when it came to me doing them, I sometimes paid them a couple of times, two times, you know, because I didn't know if I had, they were online at that time. It was just, it was uh, early 2000s. So we were doing a lot of online uh, bill paying. Right. Well, I wasn't involved in that. Getting, the other thing that was really through me, and I really uh, suggest that anybody, everybody knows your partner, knows what your partner does, know how to do your partner's job. Because I did not get know how to get money out of the, um, um, the ATM machine at that time. And uh, not because David didn't take me there a million times and show me and give me the pin and everything, because it was easier for me to put my hand out and say, can I have 20? You know, <laughs> I didn't have to go do, do the job. I need some cash. So, and, <laughs> so well, I didn't do it, but... When, it, when he got, when he was in the hospital and he was in coma and he was unable to speak un, because he was on respirator for so long, I couldn't get the PIN number at that point and I didn't have money. So I had to borrow from a friend for, um, for a few weeks until I was able to get to the bank. Plus it was like 60, 60 mile round trip to get there. So it was like, okay, this is not working. So that's one suggestion I really have for everyone. You need to know how to do the other person's jobs. Because otherwise, David would have, you know, he would have starved on onion sandwiches. Well, so that leads sort of naturally into the last thing I'd I'd like to speak with you about. You know, I I felt your book was really good at capturing that experience of a sudden trauma like that and how you put the pieces together to keep going. And of course, it was a story of resilience, for sure, on both of your part to to do all of that hard, hard work. But I wanted to talk a little bit with you uh, about what you feel may have changed in you as a result. One thing, you got better at paying the bills. I mean, there's the obvious yeah. things you learned. I do that. <laughs> yeah, and maybe, you know, I, I'm going to just jump to the conclusion that that has a very daunting effect at first, but then you can feel kind of good, you know, about these things you know how to handle, you know, you can, you can feel like you have strength that you are able to figure it out and do it. But I wondered if you're aware of any other things that are substantially different in you as a result of going through this. There's the downside, which we've talked about. Is there some uh, also things you value that have changed? 
Well, I think one of the things is that, uh, like we just talked about too, is that I, I can take charge. I, before, I would always let David take charge. He was the lead. He was the alpha male in the family. And now I think I am the one that um, is doing a lot of, the, making a lot of the decisions, especially in the beginning. In the beginning, all the decisions landed on me. Not that that's a good thing, but they all landed on me. But it also taught me that I could do it. And uh, now that we're so many years later, and uh, David is, you know, much more capable. He's definitely capable cognitively. It's just the physical things. I rely on, I still rely on him for his things, you know, for his decisions. Um, you know, we'll still go and make those decisions together. We always have. So if there's something important, then uh, I want his input on it. But I do feel that I can do it myself now. I also was able to stand up to the doctors uh, in the hospital, which is something I wouldn't normally do. Um, I, you know, don't want to cause conflict. That's one of my things. I prefer to, if you want to go here, sure, I'll go there. If you want to go, you know, have dinner at this restaurant, sure, why not? You're one of those agreeable people, huh? Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, whatever, you know, whatever. And, um, but when it came to David's health in the hospital, I had to stand up to doctors. I had to, I had to raise my voice to doctors. That's not something I was ever taught to do or expected in my life to do, to uh, stand up to authority. And I had to because it was my husband's life at that point. I think if it were mine, it probably wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been so adamant, but because he was so helpless and he needed me, I was able to do that. And so I got some, I got what I wanted because of that. Um, because I wasn't going to take their, you know, oh, it'll be okay for an answer. Because it wasn't going to be okay, not unless I activate, you know, made something um, happen. So those are the kinds of things that I actually think came out of this. One of the things David was really excited about is we just went to, uh, well, we actually went to, repair our car the other day. It's a great Honda CRV, and I, I never wanted to give it up. I loved it, but we just, I was looking at the new ones, and, and we ended up walking out of that store with a brand new car, which we were going to do in November, but we did it now. And, um, and I, I executed the whole deal. I, I did the negotiations. I talked to the guys. I took it for the test drive. I did everything, and I never thought anything about it, but I never would have done any of that. Never. Prior to this, I wouldn't have even that's, thought about getting into the driver's seat of that car. David would have right. taken it for the test drive. And well, he came home and he said, you know what you just did? He said, you <laughs> just bought a car. You know how hard that is? <laughs> bought a car. <laughs> um, yeah. There's sort of a, I, I have a feeling, well, at least with a lot of people I've talked about and a little bit with me, there's a sort of sense of why waste time? You know, why be, why be moan this thing? Just get it done. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, might exactly. have been a part of that too, you know. Ah, That's a, yeah. It, the car I works. Just want to get Let's it take it. I feel good about it. <laughs> a kind <laughs> of uh, ability to take well, intuitive I, leaps, perhaps. <laughs> right. Right. So and now you don't have you to know, worry so about was, the car for months and what car you're going to get and all of that. You've done it. <laughs> right. It's over, and and we didn't plan on it. We just did it, and it's done. You know. So it wasn't the angst of like you said going going through like okay now we're going to go out and buy a car all that kind of stuff but um yeah so i did it i bought a car i would have never thought that 
Well, I think you mentioned the bo- in the book, too, something, very briefly you mentioned it, but it sort of stood out to me, something about being having to cultivate a part of you that could be much more patient, uh, you know, that could <clears throat> sort of take things as they come a little bit more. I, I have to say, you did a lot of proactive, um, you know, taking action kind of things, and were still very much a mover and a shaker. The amount of travel you did while he was recovering was remarkable to me because uh, I know how hard yeah. that is to travel with someone who, who is limited in, in physical ways. Uh, so you still had that drive, but did you also feel a sense of being able to roll with the punches maybe more? Or I got that impression somehow. Well, uh, especially with the travel, I just felt like some of those tips were necessary. We had to, you know, I wanted, to, and so you just do them, you know, and I guess it is kind of roll with the punches thing. And it's also that goes right back up to that beginning thing. You know, uh, don't think about it. Just do it. Don't, I mean, that works for me. It probably is not going to work for everybody, but, but for me, um, I'm not going to dwell on what the bad parts of this. And that comes down to the acceptance part. And no, I don't accept that this is our, you know, that it's our life. But I, uh, I understand it. This is basically our new normal. And um, we, we just kind of, you know, it is what it is. And life has thrown us a ton of lemons. And so we're making gazillions uh, of jugs of lemonade. And that's the only way I can uh, look at this now. Because if I sit here and bemoan it, if I get upset, about our life and the things that we can't do, I'm not going to be a happy person. You know, you, you know, interestingly, right. Interestingly, in the book, I got a sense that you had a pretty healthy balance of acknowledging the losses because I do think if we try to like shoo the losses out of our mind entirely, if we don't recognize them, sometimes they sort of beat us up, but. It seemed to me you were able to acknowledge and also move forward at the same time. Yes, these well, are I the losses we've I mean, experienced, and there's sadness right. that we don't have that anymore, and this is our life now. Did I read that correctly? Right. I yeah. think you did, Cheryl. I think that it's, um, you know, I, I, I want to make the best of what we have now, you know, and yes, That's, we yes. did come through an awful lot. But you have to look forward to what you have and be grateful for what you have. I'm grateful my husband's here. You know, I just, um, I, I whispered to him before every surgery as he was in a coma. I don't know whether you heard me, but I said, I'll never forgive you if you don't come back to me. So uh, whether he heard me <laughs> you or used not, every he's tool back. at your disposal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, whether okay, it so he came not, back. It make you feel quite powerful. <laughs> I know. And oh, I told Donna, the original it, surgeon, I don't care how you give him to me, just give him back to me. So how can I complain now? I mean, at least I yeah. have him. He's not, I'm going to have to interrupt because we've run out of time. Okay. Thank you so much for being here today. And especially for people who are dealing with um, traumatic brain injury, I think they would find a lot of value in your story. And I thank you for sharing it here today. Uh, next week, we'll well, have, I'll you. have 
Dr. Jessica Nudick-Zitter. Her book, Extreme Measures, shares her perspective on the over-medicalization of -of end-of-life care. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.